Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We need now to work double hard to overturn. On the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. It's called the Phillips curve. The government is too big, it's too intrusive, it restricts what we can do. As you look within, giving the grim data of the day. Government budgets don't work like household budgets. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, there's a question being asked more and more. How many of the things that we privatize should be brought back under state control? As energy companies record massive profits, yet those on low incomes are struggling to heat their homes. But it's not just energy. It's other utilities like water, transport, maybe even telecommunications. How many of those should be back in public hands? And is there a way to determine what sits best in the public sector and what the government should be managing? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Now, there weren't actually many uh, state-owned corporations in Britain before 1945 when the Labour Party basically uh, bought a wide variety of private businesses, including the Bank of England, the coal industry, lots in the telecommunications industry, the transport industries like railways, canals, civil aviation, gas and electricity supplies, iron and steel, uh, all of that in uh, in those post-war years. But it wasn't an easy process. According to government research briefings, the coal industry, which was nationalised in 1947, involved the transfer of ownership of the, and control of 1,200 pits owned by 800 companies and employing 700,000 people uh, to, the, to what became the National Coal Board. In total, all nationalisations carried out in the post-war parliamentary uh, period transferred 2.3 million employees from the private to the public sector. And, of course, ever since then, uh, they've been hard at it, trying to take it back the other way. The privatisation of, uh, of many of those was somewhat swifter than the uh, the nationalisation, particularly in the 80s. We saw Jaguar, British Telecom, Cable and Wireless, British Aerospace, Brit Oil, British Gas, British Steel, British Petroleum, Rolls-Royce, British Airways all water and electricity, the Royal Mail. It's amazing, actually, the NHS hasn't been sold off, although it has been sort of like partially privatised. So, Steve, I mean, some of this is essential stuff, isn't it, like energy? And should that really be in the hands of private enterprise? I mean, I think we're learning that now, aren't we, as fuel bills just skyrocket? Yeah. I mean, just, just, just a quick one. Jaguar was publicly owned? Yeah, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? A car, a car company was owned by the government. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that. That really that threw me. I mean, I must admit, I, I, I would never have thought the Jaguar was a private company, um, a public company. Um, yeah. I mean, I know, I know people used to say that you, when you buy a Jaguar, you should buy two, one to drive and the other for spare parts. So maybe that's part. <laughs> maybe, maybe hey, that, excuse maybe me, that. excuse me. You're talking about a British icon here. Get, yeah, get I know. Off. I know. Get back. <laughs> so you, look, look, I'll give you. They look I'll good you, though. I don't. I don't know whether they work well, but they look. Good. They look you, pretty stylish. I'll give you a private British icon that I, I had a hilarious experience with. Um, Leyland right. was well, one of the many Leyland. companies. That, this, is, this is the distraction, everybody. That's how they but we've got to get this to. I need to cheer myself up, so I'm going to throw some crazy stories. 
I start laughing okay. rather than kicking my backside with my with my one non-defective leg. Right. Um, Leyland set up a, a, a manufacturing plant in Australia, actually on the road that, that joins you from um, the airport to the city, as it happens. And they had to try to shut it down finally. One of many foreign companies that set up 100% owned manufacturing sites in Australia and shut it down. So my mate finally could get a really cheap, uh, I forgot what, which particular model it was, uh, from Leyland. Went over to buy it, picked it up. The guy opens up the boot, over the bonnet rather, showed us the engine, shuts the lid. We then drive onto the onto uh, South uh, South Dowling Street, which is the, the road leading between the airport and uh, the city, and the engine overheats. And we're literally, I mean, we're less than a kilometre from picking it up. So we decide, to, what the fuck is going on here? We open up the bonnet and it had the the hook that held the bonnet when it when you shut it was about six inches, like 150, 200 centimetres long. And when the guy had lifted it up, it had locked in the open position. And when he shut it, it had speared itself into the radiator. Yeah, there are. A good bit of British design there. I think, <laughs> do you know God. what? I think they probably started selling British Leyland cars in Australia because they were hoping that no one had heard about them. Their reputation hadn't reached uh, Australia, so they could, uh, yeah, yeah, they could but, sell so a few any, before anyway, it cottoned on. So, so doing this is a diversion back to the back to the main theme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but they're, they're, energy it, energy it, companies, it, gas companies, oil companies, you know, raking. Yeah. Of course, yeah. there's a there's a difference, isn't there, between the energy uh, providers and the you know the the companies that are actually getting that energy and those the, those that are uh, and then selling it wholesale and those who are selling it retail. I think people often get confused by that. And, and but it's 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 a bit of a nonsense to privatize anywhere in that uh, in that chain, isn't it? Well, like, it's, uh, you have. To have a, a general rule that it makes sense about whether you privatise and whether you keep something in state ownership, and and, and the neoclassical thing is everything should be privately owned. You know, privatise will always work better. The private sector is always better than the public. Blah 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 blah. Um, but I'll give another favourite anecdote of mine to contrast this. Uh, you know, any any Australian listener doesn't have to be told how bad Australia's telecommunications system is. And it was built mm. on the principle that it should all be privatised and private groups should supply it. So when we go right back to the days when cable TV was maybe was the latest hot thing and you were laying, laying, laying optical fibre cables to um, provide uh, optical rather than uh, you know, broadcast uh, 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 systems to send TV signals. Yeah, you, you had, had you had two companies competing against each other, Opti- going down Optus, the same streets in competition. Optus yeah, had, rather than covering the whole country. Okay, yeah, so you, you had you, two. So what you would end up here, and I know this literally from my own house and and my, my, my one of my then wife's best friends' houses. We had two cables running down a street in Marrickville, and they had zero cables running down their street in Dural. Two in our street because it was profitable because it was such a densely populated related area the houses are about 20 meters wide zero in dural much wealthier area with five acre lots neither company could be bothered laying a cable there because they wouldn't make any money so what you had had was patchy coverage of the entire country by twice as much infrastructure you needed in densely populated areas and 100 percent less infrastructure than you needed in the less densely populated areas and it was malf dysfunctional and the same thing now mm. for the way that the uh, so-called national broadband network has been brought in just a, a travesty of trying to to, to meld private and but public. Isn't that an example of where you could do something, though, where you could uh, you could still allow private companies to do stuff, but you just make sure you've got the subsidies right? Or, so you or say, well, you okay, you, you, let's, you, let's give you big incentives. Let's give you a subsidy yeah. to, to, to tackle these areas. Have, and then you might go, well, okay, you have, you have, we'll go after that. Because 
if you've got two companies of similar size, then presumably they'll both be saying, well, it's preferable if we have monopolies for, you know, geographic monopolies, and then we'll compete for the highly contentious areas where there's lots of money. Well, what you, uh, what and you, if there's a government subsidy there, you you know, one of them would say, well, okay, we'll take, we'll take the subsidy and we'll go after those Or areas. what you do is you have a, a, a national infrastructure laid by a public authority, and then you have private providers providing the signals down the wire. And that's what yeah. we should have done. And, uh, yeah. and and this is the basic story. If you want an infrastructure that makes sure everybody is covered, you can't make coverage dependent on whether you have enough income to pay for it. And uh, and this is what is, what is done when you privatise essential services like these days, telecommunications, but also energy provision. Uh, and, and we're seeing the disasters we're seeing in the energy market is because the wholesale market has been privatised. Now, why, but they haven't quite completely privatised the, the uh, retail because if they did, uh, it would be quite possible to get a bill of $1,000 per hour for turning on your radiator, uh, which would not mm. go down. It, it's bad enough what's going down in the UK right now. And what the price is producing by a factor of five, I've seen. That correct yeah for at least four anyway yeah, yeah more than four yeah, yeah. so, the, it, so you, it, you have to say some things are an essential part of being in a civilized society and and you cannot have its provision based on whether people can afford to pay for it or not because then you will have huge pockets where the service just simply doesn't exist and then the people in that area are effectively not part of your society. Now, and Maggie Thatcher used to say there's no such thing as society, and if she had had her around for long enough, she'd be right. She would have destroyed us back to the Stone Age in terms of the capacity to maintain a society over a, you know, an entire nation. So you, there is something you have to look at and say, okay, what, what, how, how, how long term do you want the decision making to be? Do you want it to be three months? Privatise it. Do you want it to be three decades? Keep it in public ownership. And again, the classic example there mm. happens to be sewerage. And, and, and Adelaide listeners are probably not enough left alive from the days when this actually happened. But as South Australia, uh, the, the country, the uh, state of South Australia in Australia, uh, made the decision to privatise provision of ma- ma- uh, management of its sewerage system. And so it, I think a French company purchased the sewerage system from the state of South Australia. And then uh, about a year after they did that, there was what was known as the big pong because the the uh, the ponds in which the uh, the, the, the fecal material was broken down uh, were uh, in prevailing winds they were uh, downwind of the of the Adelaide was downwind of where the ponds were and the company right. failed to do the maintenance of the uh, bacteria that necessary to break it down because that would have hit the bottom line and so eventually all the ba- all the bacteria died down and you had anaerobic bacteria taking over the breakdown process which meant Adelaide stunk for about I think imagine about one or two years but wouldn't you have fines in place wouldn't you have regulation I mean that, wouldn't, that, wouldn't, isn't that another example public, of where private sector could do stuff but you, if, you, if you've got the regulations what you're right. saying is wouldn't the public sector dominated by neoclassical economists think everything should be privatized sign contracts with the private sector where they realize the private sector can be a bunch of turds who don't who don't do what you Literally. want them to do unless you find them no the idiots who the neoclassical end up running government about uh, half who believe this shit pardon the pun uh, end up also mm. believing the private sector is uh, only populated by angels there's no such thing as donald trump or other personality of that nature and so you can rely upon them to do the right thing you don't need to write it into a contract and so most yeah. of these private public private contracts are 
full of holes, the private sector goes off and has champagne party to celebrate how they pull another one over the public people who believe this stuff in the first place. Because you have well, that's certainly the believe, case with the energy yeah. companies yeah. right now, isn't it? Yeah. Because you know some of those are making massive profits. But just on good, and we'll, we'll have, have a look at that in a second. But just going back to your, what, were you, what was your time scale? If, it, if it's if the time scale is three months, then uh, yeah, you have then to, you can yeah. privatise it. If it's if it's three years, then you need to nationalise it. But there are things that are. Uh, I mean, surely that apply that that is fine for things where you've got a a, a monopoly provider but stuff like housing for example you might be working on a on a housing complex that might take three years to build you know large infrastructure projects you're not saying the state builds no, all of no, those but, as well but, are what, you? what i'm saying is that there are i mean that's actually the, probably the, the most beautiful summary of this was actually made by um hugh stretton who's the australian uh actually a, a town and country planner who got involved in economics and ended up again back to south australia it's the, it's the, the source of this example hugh had a bunch of very bolshy staff and they were having drinks one night and one of them said all housing should be private should be publicly constructed there should be no private housing and Hughes simply very calmly said no they need us to keep them honest and we need them to keep us sufficient and i think that's a wonderful right. yin yang dialectic argument about so you need a mix of both you need a mix of both in in, in most in, in in most situation but there are some areas where the economies of scale are so enormous that it is simply silly to have more than one provider and the classic instance of that again is is, is telecommunications when you lay mm. cable you simply want to have it done once not twice up some yeah. streets and zero up well others. you know i mean i i hear what you're saying and i and i had that school of thought as well and we won't dwell on this because I, I feel like we've, we've talked about it before but yeah. in the uk there is infrastructure competition and there are for example Virgin Media rolls out and uh, they roll out their cable there's other cable companies rolling out now as well uh, they've got access to the ducts you know they're given access to the yeah. same ducts that are being provided so actually that's that that's the real cost you're just shooting a wire down it's not it's not a great deal uh, so you can have infrastructure competition like that you can so, you can in but, intense uh, areas so like for example one thing mm. which happened with where there was a when there was cable provision uh, in, the, in in Sydney, um, there were also private providers saying, well, there are some organisations that need extremely high-speed access, higher than the standard cable going down. And so there were private provisions down down as well as public in some instances. And that's okay, mm. so long as, I mean, you, what you then look at, do you going, is, is the pricing of that going to be, because you've cherry-picked the most profitable ones for the private sector, do you undermine the maintenance of the public sector and so on? But fundamentally, there's there 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 are some things you cannot afford to have them break down. It's, you don't really care, or you do care to some extent how much you pay for electricity, but you don't want electricity failing every two hours or breaking down for one hour a day, and that therefore means that while it's broken down, all your steel mills fail because the the you can't yeah. maintain the arc furnaces and the temperature and the steel you know solidifies inside the furnace etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are some things where you want 100% reliability well that and in in that yeah and energy and, and those things are the the classic that should be publicly owned. right okay but what what element within the chain so let's look at energy because you know that four or five times increase by the way is the is is the price cap which applies to uh, to, to domestic homes it could actually be a worse situation for for businesses which are not subject yeah. subject to that cap but the but retail companies are also going broke because it's the wholesale rates now the food i mean it is crazy first of all and well maybe it's less crazy to have competition in the retail sector but by and large they are just marketing organizations aren't they they're taking the wholesale rate figuring out how they can uh, make the pricing plan as confusing as possible so they look like they're a better deal than the next one uh, and they're low margin businesses which are basically telecenters uh, that, that, that are you know buying and reselling energy the issue is 
the companies that are actually getting the gas, the suppliers for the gas and the and the oil companies. It's hard to um, it's hard to nationalise those. I mean, we had British gas, but that was in a day when we had a lot of gas in the North Sea. I think it's you know it's become uneconomic to uh, to tap a lot of those those resources. And obviously, energy is provided on on a global scale. You can't, you know, to, how do you nationalise something when you're actually buying it from uh, uh, from around the world, or do, or does does it just become a, a nationalised purchasing entity that just tries to get the best? Well, deal? It, 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 it's it's partly it's a question of you know, what is the most uh, effective way to allocate to control the allocation of, of resources. And of course, neoclassicals say it's the price system, mm. and what they do is they have a, they have a mythical view of how prices actually operate in the first bloody place. So they imagine they've got right marginal cost and that's that's absolutely false for the vast majority of companies particularly things like energy there's a declining cost if the input costs are a, a, a constant which we'll come to mm. uh, then as you increase the scale you increase the efficiency of the of the system producing a power you don't decrease it and your marginal cost falls there's all the empirical surveys including Alan Blinder's much neglected study back in 1999 marginal cost falls now that's not in the economic textbooks therefore it's not in the economic policy and they presume right which cost. is bizarre because that because it falls into the particularly you're right in these infrastructure intensive industries it falls mm. into the land of the bleeding obvious doesn't it because so much of it is infrastructure which is a which is a fixed cost so if you've yeah, got and, that huge fixed cost and, and you're just shoving more stuff down the pipes then obviously the amount yeah. per um whatever you want to call it megatherm or whatever they whatever you're measuring it as is going to be less isn't it yeah yeah but the, the decline declining you know, huge fixed cost declining average fixed cost for simple mathematical reasons, but also the variable costs uh, because, because thank God, factories are designed by engineers rather than by economists. Uh, they get more efficient as you approach the full scale of operation. So all mm. these policies about how, how to control it using the price system presume an empirical situation that doesn't exist. And the worst of it comes up in power generation. And I had some exposure to the uh, Australian wholesale market. I got some inter- internal information there uh, about the, in, the the market itself. So what they did was they used the price system to control the wholesale market and the vision was they'd also use the price system for the retail market and then consumers would need to decide when they turn the radiator on or off etc etc based on price signals but the the vision never got there because the wholesale market itself was incredibly volatile. So I'm, 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 probably, I'm just going from memory and I'm probably going to get some of the prices wrong, but you might have had like an average price of, and, you know, bear with me, the numbers are wrong. I'm just using this as an illustration. As an example. Say 30, yeah. 30 bucks a megawatt, for example. Uh, but but then when, when there was a low availability, the, the price would spike and you might reach $1,000 per megawatt. So when you look at the overall pattern of price dynamics in the wholesale market over a year, it turned out that if you're plant wasn't operating for three days of the year, you would lose money. Okay? Right. Because the price volume was so high that the incredible profits that came from selling a power when it was $1,000 a megawatt made up for losing money most of the time when it was, say, $20 a megawatt was costing you $30, $25 a megawatt to make it. So, the so they're making money out of the volatility of, of supply. They, they, if not only that, they, they, if they happen to have bad luck and their plant was shut down for those particular three days, they'd lose money. So it became it's such a disaster 
that you sort of had to hide the wholesale market from the retail market rather than transferring the you know well-functioning system at the wholesale market not and putting up to the retail level they never actually made the transition to putting into the retail so for the retail you had controlled prices for the wholesale this incredible volatility and of course that's happening you don't get the investment you need at the wholesale level to maintain the system over time or you had people doing even worse the um, in australia they they, they got the again one of these crazy elements where the the private sector screwed the public sector the the, the public sector agreed to let the to have cost plus pricing a part of the infrastructure for power provision in I think in New South Wales which meant that you could gold plate as they said your your system and get the money back from gold plating it in terms of the investments you went in so it, it is just you know, heading getting ideology which people think is you know, logic the economic theory getting that ideology to control your decision to what you privatize and what you don't and how you control the allocation of the of the resources at, at various levels of the pricing system is a total nightmare and we're now seeing the outcome of it in these crazy prices the power all around the world well yeah so the 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 one classic example of the way uh, private companies perform versus uh, public utilities i mean obviously the end game is different isn't it they want to make as much profit as possible and and mm. the the greatest example of that in the uk uh, is uh, how little gas storage there is so the uk holds enough gas for four or five days of demand, Germany has 16 times more gas storage than the UK. We had uh, what was called the rough storage facility, which was in the in the North Sea, which is, I mean, basically, I think it's a, a depleted reserve, a de- depleted reservoir, and they and they fill it full of gas from from elsewhere, and that's where your reserves go. And uh, we had. Uh, 3.3 billion cubic meters of gas uh, in the rough storage facility, which could meet 10% of the peak demand in the UK. So they would dip into it when demand really hit hit a high. But guess what? Uh, it was owned by Centrica Energy rather than the British Gas Corporation, who previously had owned it. And Centrica obviously didn't want to spend the money on it because why would they? Because when demand is high and supplies are low, they just charge more. Why would they spend money to hold mm. gas to try and level off the price? Yeah, exactly. And you, the, 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 you do need to do that. You, you do need to stabilize the price of an essential input like energy, the essential input. So there's, there's, there's all areas yeah. where this ideology that the market sector Private markets always does better. What they're looking at is a you know a two-dimensional drawing of supply and demand curves on a textbook, and everything works out better in that system. Let's apply it to the real world. The real world is not only far more complex than the than the supply and demand diagram. It contradicts the supply and demand diagram. So using that as your guide to decide whether you privatise something or make it public ownership is just nonsense. And instead, we have to look at things like the uh, do you do you need long-term maintenance of the system to make it work? Tick, then it should be publicly owned. Do you need a long-term investment horizon? Tick, it should be publicly owned. Where you're going to put the ticks against private ownership come down to the role of innovation and diversity. And in, in, in then that's why, like, I think having a, a publicly owned car company doesn't make much <laughs> sense. Having a privately owned one sounds rather more sensible to me. And equally, my favourite example there is, is, is university food. Uh, back in the days when you had... Um, you know, a, a monopoly, the, the, the whatever, the, the student union, whatever else, but the only supplier of food, it was bland and boring. Mm. When you said, let's let in the local suppliers to come in and set up their own little stalls, it became interesting and exciting. Yeah. So there, there are things like that where it makes obvious sense to have private provision because of innovation and diversity. Uh, but uh, at, at, the, at the level of things like energy, 
not so much the mining of coal. I mean, that that that, that sort of thing has me worried as for straight public ownership. But uh, you you want to have why? You know, the, the, um, partly because you then if if, if you then want to phase out coal, or you realize you want to re- reduce it. I mean that. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm torn on that one because obviously if you had public ownership and you then have um, uh, the public system deciding we have to get away from producing too much carbon dioxide, then yes, it's easy to shut it down than when it's privately owned and you don't have the Koch brothers, well-named Koch brothers, um, uh, you know, fighting tooth and nail to hang on to their coal mines. Yeah. So it, it is it is a difficult call, but uh, certainly the, you, your general principle has to be whether you want this to be available to everyone in your society. Uh, and therefore, you don't want to have it supply determined by whether people can actually afford to pay for it or or not at a private market system, and whether you want a long-term investment uh, horizon and maintenance to be guiding you rather than short-term profitability. But how do you ma- how, those- how do you manage it in a situation like the UK though, where there's not a lot of uh, energy produced? Well, actually, I, that, that, I'm telling a lie because about thirty percent, I think, of the, of the energy which is uh, consumed in the UK now actually comes from wind power. So, I mean, there's been a massive investment in in that. But, I mean, of the old fossil fuels, I mean, hardly any of that is produced now in the UK. And sort of like the baseload energy that we rely on comes from overseas. So you can't nationalise stuff mm. that you are importing. And it's it's coming from yeah, the yeah. energy companies. And the, it's shocking that BP, Chevron, Exxon, Shell, Total Energies, $60 billion US dollars in profits in the second quarter in, in just three months, $60 billion, And they spent $20 billion in share buybacks. So here we all are struggling to heat, uh, heat our homes. Uh, and here are these big oil companies that are just buying back shares so that they push up the share price so that, the, you know, the, the, their, their shareholders, so including the executives. They get a bit of a bit of vesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it, that that is, uh, you know, and they are upping their buyback targets as well, tripling them in some cases because of the extraordinary profits they've had uh, since the since the war started. Uh, there's something fundamentally wrong with that, but it's on an international scale. There's not a lot individual countries can do about that, is there? No, and like if you if you look back, um, well, I mean, it, it, we want to you know, fundamentally we want to shut down fossil fuels. That is absolutely vital for the future of humanity. And the future, not of humanity, but the future of other species on the planet as well. So but that then you, when you try to do that, you're going to fight the resistance of these groups. And of course, along with economists, the, uh, uh, the main people fighting any sensible action on, on, on fossil fuel usage and carbon dioxide generation have been those, uh, those fossil fuel companies. So, uh, you, you, you have a real dilemma. But again, like, you know, for some things which are absolutely essential, energy, water, sewerage, education uh those are all areas where you'd want to have public provision of them dominating rather than private right but in but the if, case I mean, but you're, you're, you're happy, scale, to, you're happy real... to see them sitting alongside each other so if uh if if so that other companies can compete with the government if they wanted to potentially yeah you've got it you, that's where the hugh stretton's idea that we they need us to keep them honest we need them to keep us sufficient the duality there makes makes eminent sense but you need people who are aware of that rather than caught up in some bloody ideology and that bloody ideology can be the neoclassical at one extreme where you uh you know you believe everything they're better by the private sector if people in the public sector believe that then you're in trouble but equally if you get the other extreme where the other the, uh, owning the commanding heights of the economy the old-fashioned 
uh, you know, semi-Marxist view of what should be done, which dominated how England private public made public you know, so many things back after the Second World War. That's also flawed, and it's the it's the lack of awareness of the of the strengths of the public versus the private side. The public is going to give you the long-term investment, the reliability, and the guarantee gets supplied to everybody. The private will give you the innovation, the dynamism, and the change. Uh, and those are the best aspects of both of those systems. You want to combine those two in how you divide up what is publicly provided and what is provided by private uh, enterprise. So in, the, in the, the, the sphere of energy, I mean, is there a case for sort of like a modern day equivalent of what was the British Gas Corporation, but it, it, it deals with all energy? So it's there saying, well, OK, we are going to commission the building of, uh, of wind farms and other alternate energy. We recognise that we've got to buy in and supply uh, gas and oil, but we will, we, we will be responsible for purchasing that for the UK. Uh, and, you know, other countries could be doing the same, obviously, so yeah. that they then can say, well, OK, we know the price of that. We can see the price of that is going up. We're going to subsidize it. We're going to build. We need to build storage facilities. So we're going to invest in that. But our long term game, obviously, is to try and get the uh, the price of alternate energies down. And all of that is coordinated by the government. That sort of thing is, is feasible. Um, at the same time, like you want you want the private innovation to come up with new technologies that uh, uh, give them prop- you know, they get a profit reward for bringing up those innovations. Uh, at the same time, so you'd have a, there, you know, there are always going to be conflict. There'll be no perfect situation, but fundamentally, I think the actual infrastructure should be publicly provided, and then uh, the innovation, both public and private, uh, tr- trying to develop, you know, the the new technologies that, like for example, move us away from needing cadmium or uh, uh, you know other other you know rare earth elements as inputs into producing solar cells. Um, uh, you 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 need a motivation even in that area which is public because it's you you, you know private private profitable to you know have kids mining cadmium and you get well, i've forgotten the actual country that's dominant in in africa for those mines but you know privately yeah why not make the money out of them publicly we we don't want these substances in the air to begin with um so you want to go to towards you know iron-based technology for example rather than lithium-based technology for batteries so but then again well who will be the best innovator that you don't know it's it's really a case of of, of the, who the in individual researchers will solve that problem and sometimes they'll be best motivated by profit others they'll be best motivated by having a sense of public duty and you want both public and private trying to do that innovation right but if, if you have a body that's sort of coordinating all of that and it's a it's a government body or a quasi-government body the problem is of course it becomes it becomes politicized doesn't it so the you know you mentioned the MBN in australia which is which has been an a complete balls up for for political reasons to to the point where they have uh, wholesale differential pricing for access depending on the speed so you've got a and that is simply because they want to try and claw back as much money as possible this is at the wholesale level uh, mm-hmm. so even though you, you know you've got a you've got a, a fiber optic cable going into your house and you can it can run at top speed uh, it is at the wholesale level there's an infrastructure in there to slow it down so they can charge you more if you want to get it faster, even though the infrastructure is being paid for. Uh, so there's all sorts of the crazy stuff like that. So the so the government focus obviously is, well, let's claw back as much money as possible. It might change now because there's been a change of government, of course. But I mean, it, but the, I mean, I'm only mentioning that as an example where, you know, the objective of the government might be in, in that case, which is, you know, how do we get some of our money back rather than how do we provide the fastest speeds possible so that we can but be again, to get the a money more back productive is- nation. But get the money back orientation comes down to people who don't understand how money is actually created. And the government doesn't need to finance that stuff. It can create the money for it. So, again, yeah. ideology. 
But I think even even in the private sector, you can find examples like that. Anybody who's old enough would remember the days when IBM mainframes had what they call the magic screwdriver. And that is the IBM mainframe run at a particular clock speed and you'd be charged a huge amount of money to increase the clock speed. And what actually happened was a technician went in there and literally used a screwdriver to turn up a, a, a component inside it to increase the clock speed. I knew people who used to do that for a living. Um, and we've, I've seen recent examples. I've tried to remember where I saw it recently, but some some similar thing where the private sector... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. A, a wonderful series of tweets about what, what private companies do with inkjet printers. Uh, all sorts of tricks to manage, make sure that you use their ink supplies rather than cheaper ones you can get from other groups. So yeah. there's an incredible amount of nefarious behaviour in the private sector, which is uh, which is left out of how... Uh, you know, and the private sector ideologues talk about how the private sector will be better than the public sector. Yeah, HP have got me. Uh, we're on a subscription for that. We've you know got a very cheap. You uh, subscribe to get printer cartridges. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> Anyway, get scrutin' off against Dana's business, so that's all good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, but it, you know, we got a very cheap printer, and then you end up paying for it over over the years because you because you're paying the subscription fee. But you know, I don't I don't mind that too much. I don't mind that whole pay less and pay a subscription. But anyway, that's getting us off the top topic a little bit. There, there is there's an IMF study in 2019 that looked at state versus private uh, sector companies, and the, particularly they were looking in in Germany, but ac- but across Europe. I mean, they were looking at you know the East-West divide and whether the uh, old Eastern European com- companies that were being privatised started to perform better. And they say state-owned enterprises systematically, they say, underperform relative to private sector counterparts in nearly all countries. They say they tend to hoard labour, pay more generously, generate less revenue per employee than their private sector peers. Now, I, I mean, aside from those areas that we've talked about where there's, you know, a, a, a monopoly or a long-term investment that's needed that, uh, that the short-term focus of private companies are, are not going to adhere to, you can see some of that, can't you? That the private, that the, the people in the, in, the, in the government sector, uh, well, we know, if, you know, if you want to pitch for work, a pitch to the government because the person you're pitching to probably doesn't know the cost of things and you can charge an arm and a leg. I mean, you see it happening all the time. Yeah, it, it, there's no perfect solution to this. And I, like I've seen public organisations, um, you know, end up with that sclerotic behaviour, uh, which you're describing there. Um, but it comes down, well, what actually matters more, efficiency or reliability? And because neoclassical economics reduces everything to efficiency without realizing, without understanding, that means that the real systems you generate can be very, very brittle and and not not be robust to change. This is this is where the celeb's idea of anti-fragility comes in. There are some things you want to be anti-fragile. And the, the classic uh, elements there are things like health services. Uh, uh, you know, like I've got a personal instance of that mm. coming up shortly. And I, I would prefer to see more of the public sector provision of that than private um but uh, you've all you've, you've you, you know it, it is a it, it is an area of it's never going to be an easy solution there'll never be one little guiding line that gets you there uh but fundamentally if you want something to be robust and not subject to short-term degradation or short-term lack of supply electricity supply being an obvious example there, then you want to have the infrastructure maintained by the state and you want to have the payment through the state's capacity to create money rather than through individuals' capacity to pay for for pay for elements of it. In other things where you want that vi- uh, vitality of the private sector and innovation, then you will want it to be privately provided. So uh, banks, 
just touching on this briefly because we are running short of time, but is that a short term or a long term? Is there a case for a state? Bank, banks, state are, banks, are, banks, banks are a bit of both. I mean, the trouble is the incentive for banks these days are, you know, please fund a Ponzi scheme. That's the best way to make money. And the best Ponzi scheme is housing. Mm. And you've got both the government and the banks caught up in that particular one. That is a real can of worms. Uh, but I would, I would like to have, uh, you know, it, you, you need, you, in that case, you need limits on the private sector. You don't want housing bankings funding Ponzi schemes. Mm. What do they fund? Ponzi schemes, because the easiest way to make money as a bank uh, is is to fund housing and rising housing prices. And it's, you know, that's part of the feedback loop given these disastrous asset prices we have now. Right. And if you, so if, you, if you created a state bank and you said, well, okay, a state-owned bank, and you said, well, we are going to invest in uh, more productive purposes, then the rest of the banking sector is going to go, yeah, you great, you do that, because we're not doing it. You do that. We're yeah. going to keep we're going to keep. Uh, and you can also housing. you can also get state banks to start to behave like private ones. So back in, we go back to the uh, the uh, 80s crash of the stock market crash. Then one of the elements of that in Australia was the State Bank of Victoria that ended up funding even more speculative bubbles than the private mm. sector did. So there's there are, again no there's no such thing as a perfect solution to anything. But certainly in the banking sector, I would like to see a publicly owned bank, and I would like to yeah. see it run in under public. Uh, uh, concepts but at the same time it can be less profitable because the short-term profit comes out of funding a ponzi scheme yeah so it's you know, very very hard to get any of these things to work perfectly so uh the, there's the danger though isn't there that if, a lot of this the more you do it then people are going to go hang on you know you, you're taking us back to soviet russia it's all centralized planning and then uh, you know if yeah, mm-hmm. and and there is the danger that that can wholesale if the wrong person is in charge and i think it, it, it all gets down to you know in the in the public sector the, the weakness in management and, and governance is that is the big problem that stops this working well but you you look at you know what's happened in china there's at least 65 million empty homes in china which is enough for you know everybody in britain could live alone in an empty house in <coughs> in china which is just astronomical i mean how does that happen that is an example isn't it of how the government controlling everything can get things so wrong. No, it's not. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, well, tell me why. Partially, I mean, if you, got, if you actually look at the Chinese situation, the, the government definitely you know, sponsored a huge property bubble over there as their response to the 2009 crisis, because there was a huge plunge in China's exports immediately because of the global financial crisis. So the government basically told the banks to lend anybody with a pulse, and that's what led off to a property bubble occurring. Uh, but it was also the private groups taking advantage of that and it's also with the local councils. The local councils would fund themselves by sending land, selling land on the periphery of their of their uh, urban areas. And, no, and then, but that's public yeah, sector. Yeah, so public-private combined together, and you end up with the with the nightmare out of the two. Um, so I, you know, that's that's another can of worms we should get into another day, Phil. Yeah, yeah, it is okay. I know, you know, and I, I, another example I've got just on a very local scale. We've got a whole new development being built in our town. Uh, whereas actually the easiest solution would have been actually to, to just invest in making the t- town centre uh, car-free so you have a more pleasant experience shopping in the shops that are already there and the streets that are already there and, and working your way around uh, building a bypass. But it's a lot easier, obviously, to say, no, 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 let's just keep the town centre busy uh, and let's uh, get someone to build a whole new shopping complex somewhere else because then the private enterprise does it all because it's cheaper because we don't have to pay out of the public purse. So, you know, there's a million and one examples like that, whereas, you know, that is completely the wrong thing to do. And a great example of uh, where um, the uh, public sector works really well is Germany and German trains, the Deutsche Bahn, completely state-owned. Uh, I'm surprised they get away with it, actually, with the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Maastricht regulations. 
it makes a loss. The government pays for all infrastructure investment. It lost six billion euros in 2020. Um, and uh, so it loses about 0.06 uh, euros per kilometre. Uh, but they had this ability during the energy crisis to say, hey, cheap train fares, you know, don't get in your car, um, get on the train and we'll heavily subsidise it, which they can do because they own the blasted thing. Uh, you know, and they, of, course, they, of course, they also own also slabs of English rail and treat it as a private enterprise profit system, and they charge an arm and a leg to English uh, yeah. uh, consumers of, tra- of public transport. Yeah, so that is just crazy, isn't it? But uh, yeah. whether we'll ever see it happening, but uh, I mean, I like your. It, it is all the time scale, isn't it? And and and, yeah. uh, and the, uh, the 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 short term efficiency versus the long term reliability. I, I like that way you've coined it there. All right, great to have you on again, Steve. And hopefully, we've got a few new listeners because from now on, this podcast is free. We were foolishly charging people uh, or getting them to support you, and you can still, of course, support Steve Keen on Patreon. We'd like you to do that because it's not just about this podcast; it's about the whole uh, breadth of work that Steve does. Uh, I mean, a two-minute summary of why people, if they're hearing us for the first time, why they should go and visit your Patreon page, Steve. Fundamentally, because economic theory is garbage, mainstream economic theory. It's, it's an ideology believed by people who believe it's logical. It is full of intellectual holes, full of empirical and logical errors. And we're using it as our guiding light for how we run our economy. And the result of that is is not just the financial instability we've seen and now the energy volatility we've seen, but potentially uh, economists have actually helped uh, the fossil fuel companies make the case that we should continue pumping carbon into the atmosphere, and that may 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 end up bringing out the destruction of capitalism by people who think they're defending it. That's one of many instances. They don't understand money. They leave money out of their economic models. So if you wonder why economists don't see financial crises coming, it's because banks and debt and money does not play a role in any mainstream economic model. And I'm trying to build the alternatives for that. And I'm also designing software to do it, which is I've had an open source software package called Minsky, which I'm designing to enable us to do dynamic, non-equilibrium monetary modeling of, of, of the economy. Um, so all those things are, are vital because the, uh, uh, coming back to this public and private thing, uh, mainstream economists dominate the economics departments around the world. And therefore, they hold onto their paradigm, even though there's incredible flaws in it. So it's only mavericks like myself working outside the system who give us a chance to have a new realistic paradigm at capitalism and a paradigm that reflects the fact that the economy is part of the ecology and not vice versa right and we were, oh, i'm long-winded aren't i no no that's all right. i think i was probably about two minutes that's all right and uh you know that we'll be challenging that paradigm of course each week on the podcast as well if that's not enough for you by the way just supporting steve with all that work you also get this podcast a few days early if you support him on patreon as well before we make it available to everybody else look we're looking at uh, china and the u.s next time well actually not just china and the u.s the whole BRICS thing brazil russia india and china uh, what happens if, if you know if that, that that forms a really strong alliance and we see less trade with the West? How does that play out? Who's the ultimate winner? We'll look at all of that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Do it, mate. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.